Our guest today is Gary Imhoff. Gary is an award-winning actor, singer, voiceover specialist, teacher, and director. Gary has starred in over 30 television productions, spanning from Carnival Monk, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as well as being the voice of Spider-Man, the animated series, playing both Harry Osborn in The Green Goblin, and most famously known for his role as Prince Cornelius in Thumbelina. Gary has over 30 years of experience as an acting teacher and coach in Los Angeles and has taught many of those years at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. In 2007, Gary developed his own unique approach and created the Professional Artist Workshop and the Musical Artist Workshop, which he teaches at the Whitmore Lindy Theater in North Hollywood, as well as online classes and teaching artists all over the world. Okay, welcome to the Broke Actors Podcast. Today we have Gary Imhoff, who I like to refer to as the living legend. He is my acting teacher and mentor, and I'm so happy to welcome here today. Thank you for coming, Gary. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Okay, so we'll get right into it. Can you tell us how you were introduced into the world of acting? Wow. Well, I, I'll tell you, I don't know exactly how I was introduced to the world of acting because I produced a play on the doorstep when I was four. Okay. So I wanted to be, I wanted to act that early. I, maybe it came, I come from a family of artists. None of them mm-hmm. are actors. My father was a musician before World War II. My mother was a USO singer. Um, so I, I, I certainly was familiar with the arts. But oddly enough, my best friend's mother was the star of the community theater in town. Now, I don't know if that's what led me into acting or if I just naturally came to it. I, I, met, I probably was born to be an actor. Okay. My, I'm told that in a, in a family reunion at the age of three, I sat in the salad bowl because it was in the center of the, the buffet. So I apparently have wanted to be a part of the center of the stage for my whole life. So... There you go. When I was in fifth grade, I starred in the Mikado of, of an operetta, Gilbert Sullivan operetta, and the high school did the sets and the costumes. And I thought, this is what I want to do my whole life. So that's when I consciously know I wanted, I knew I wanted to be an actor. Okay. Where at um, what point did you take the steps into going into having a acting career? Well, I was. All along, I got involved in every play I could get involved in or every musical. I also was a singer and I trained at the New England Conservatory of Music at 15 on Saturdays in Boston. I went in all by myself on the train every Saturday and trained my voice and then two years in college. So I was always heading, Broadway was my first dream. I was always heading to Broadway, but uh, I went two years at the New England Conservatory of Music and then I decided I wanted to uh, transfer to a more liberal arts college and I got accepted at Princeton. But just two weeks before I was supposed to go to Princeton to start, my neighbor called me up and said, they're holding open auditions for cast replacements in Godspell, which was the biggest hit Boston had seen in 10 years. Okay. And, and she said, you should, you should go. And of course it made me immediately terrified but I went, she's right, I should go. And I slept on it for a day. And then I went, now I'm gonna go down. Waited in line behind a hundred, uh, 
450 people for 10 hours and auditioned, got a callback, got a callback, had six callbacks wow. and signed my first production contract literally six days after my birthday when I turned 20. So that's when I officially entered the world of acting and my career. And that was in Boston still? In Boston. Okay. Then I, did... I did that show. Sorry, go ahead. No. I was going to ask, when did you move into the New York spectrum of... Yeah, what happened was the stage manager told me shortly after hiring me, you should be in commercials. I said, I know that's why I want to be in commercials. He said, I know the best manager of juveniles in New York. Mm -hmm. I'll set it up with you. Fly in on your off day. We, we had Mondays off. Um, and I flew in, met her. She threw a contract in front of me within five minutes and said, this is for your protection. If you don't want to work with me, you don't have to mm -hmm. have anybody read it you want. She was my manager for 20 years and handled huge people uh, at that time. Ralph Carter in Good Times, Irene Cara on Fame, uh, Donnie Most on Happy Days. And I started flying in for commercial auditions on Mondays and Tuesdays. Sometimes I'd fly in in the morning, do an audition, fly back and do the show at night in Boston. Okay. Because they had a shuttle. They, they had a shuttle every hour going from between Boston and New York, Eastern Airlines. And I would, so I started doing commercials. My first commercial was a Coca-Cola commercial. They, they gave me my SAG card. They made me eligible for SAG. Okay. Um, and then about 10 months into the run of the show in Boston, that stage manager had moved to the New York company. He'd taken over the New York company and he called up and said, we have a different part opening up in the New York company. I'd like you to come in and do it. And it was the part I was really right for. The part I'd played in Boston was the one who sings All Good Gifts, which was great because I'm a singer mm -hmm. and my voice was beautiful in that song. But the part I'm really right for is Jeffrey who sings We Beseech Thee. And so I went to New York and played Jeffrey for another six months. So that's okay. how I got to New York. And you started off with a manager before an agent? Yes, well in New York, uh, at least at that time, I don't know how it works in New York now, but at that time you freelanced with agents. You didn't have to sign with agents in New York. Okay. So the moment I signed with her, she had six agencies who wanted to represent me. So they oh, all wow. represented me. So I had six people, six different agencies submitting me for parts. And, and the agency that, that got the audition first and called with the audition first is the one who would get that gig. And so I freelanced for the, all the years I was in New York. Now, is that kind of the same as what they consider hip pocketing when you have that nope. many people? Nope, it's completely different. It's, it's, that's the way they worked in those days. I'm sure they signed clients too, but, but with this manager, and it seemed like agents were much more open to freelancing. So you could be represented by more than one agency because you weren't signed by them. There wasn't an exclusive deal. Okay. So for my entire time in LA, in New York, I freelanced. The moment I came to LA, I signed with an agent because LA worked differently than New York. It may be different now. It was, this is, this is decades ago. So, but that's the way it worked then. I, I, one job I would be represented by Susan Smith, another job I'd be represented by Mort Schwartz, another job I'd be represented by somebody else. So, so. how did the process, um, how long were you on Broadway before you decided to switch into film and television? I worked in New York for about four, and a half. Well, no, that's not true. Hang on. Um, 
I hit New York at the age of 20, May okay. of my 20th year. And I'm a fairly small town guy. I was raised in a small town outside of Boston, um, although I was now a city guy because I lived in Boston when I did the show and I love Boston. I lived there when I was at the conservatory. But I was a pretty small town guy. New York hit me hard. Living in New York alone was yeah. a little tough. Yes. And I, I always had this battle between academics and art. In fact, mm -hmm. I had an English teacher. I was the salutatorian in my graduating class. I was the second highest, I was the highest ranking male, second highest ranking out of all the students. And my best friend was the highest ranking female. She, she beat me by a few points. And my English teacher, who I really admired, she said, you're wasting your brain going into the arts. And that never okay. left me. So I always had a desire kind of for medicine, kind of be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so I also, when I went to the New York company of Godspell, the actors in Godspell were, had been doing the job too long. Mm -hmm. They didn't get along very well. We were in a, now a much smaller theater with tiny dress rooms and we were all in one dress room. All the men were in one dress room all the way. So we didn't get, it was not a pleasant experience. Okay. And I thought, oh, is this what it's like as a business? I mean, the Boston company was like doing art for free, but getting paid for it. It was just glorious. Mm -hmm. um, but New York was tough and, and being in New York was tough. And I was kind of lonely. My girlfriend was in Boston and I decided to quit acting. You may not know this. I decided to quit acting, go to Princeton, and do pre-med. I went to Harvard Summer School. I turned down a Broadway show. I turned down the understudy to Candide on Broadway with Hal Prince to, to go do Harvard Summer School and then go to Princeton and be pre-med. And it was kind of interesting because for the first time in my life, I didn't act at all. I'd been acting since I could speak. Right. And I didn't act for a year and a half. I starved myself. I went cold turkey. They tried to get me in shows at Princeton. Wouldn't do it. And so I studied pre-med for a year, went to Harvard Summer School, which was great. And I kind of looked at that whole career. And they, they wangled me. They convinced me at Princeton at the tail end of the year to write and direct and participate in a series of skits about being a student at Princeton. And I wrote a 10 minute monologue, comedy monologue about what it was like to be a, a transfer student at Princeton, which was a little like being a Martian on planet earth. Mm -hmm. And I got a standing ovation. The night went incredibly well. I got a standing ovation. I walked off the stage, which was about four feet off the ground. My feet never hit the ground. I was floating. And I walked into the pre-medical advisor's office on Monday morning. And he was like a pseudo father to me. And he was saying, you're going to go to Harvard, Harvard med school and you're going to have a great career. I walked in and I said, I need to go back. And he said, I know I was there. <laughs> he saw it. He was a great guy. And I finished my year out and then went back to New York. So then I was in New York for another couple of years. And okay. I, after, so, so the whole total amount of time was about four and a half years. Okay. And then my manager called, I had been, yeah. I had, I had hired, yeah, for, with about a year and a half in between. Okay. I had been hired to place Charlie Brown in the original company, the original, supposed to be original Broadway company of Snoopy, which was the sequel to Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. And we closed out of town in Philadelphia purely because of legal reasons. It's too long a story to explain. Mm -hmm. But the show closed out of town. I was supposed to be out of town for eight months taking the, taking the show on tour before it opened up Broadway. 
And my manager called, I was breaking up with the girlfriend I thought I was going to marry. My manager called in the midst of all this craziness and said, my client, Donnie Most, just booked Happy Days. He's going to be tied up for six years on a series. I need somebody to go out and take his calls because you're kind of like him. I said, you couldn't call me at a better time. I'd love to go try television. I flew out here. I booked the lead in a feature film four days off the plane. Wow. And I've never looked back. Although I have gone back to New York to do shows twice. Okay. But, but I've stayed in Los Angeles ever since and worked in television and film and theater here too. And then done a couple of shows in New York. Now, which was your preferred um, acting experience, theater or film and television? Like them all. I like them all equally and they're very different. Right. There's, there's pluses and minuses to each, and I like them all equally. Oddly enough, I like teaching as much as any of them. So, so I In like everything I In comparison to those, teaching gives you the same yeah. high that you get from performing? I'll, I'll tell you why. It's interesting. I never expected it. I didn't even expect to be a teacher. That, that, that sort of fell into my lap unexpectedly. Um, I... Teaching is instant gratification mm -hmm. and teaching. One of my main purposes in life is I love helping people. And I was a counselor at 15 on a drug hotline. It turned into a suicide abortion, you name it, hotline. Mm -hmm. I then was a counselor when I was at Princeton, uh, helping students with their various problems. And so I've always liked helping people. But the minute I sat in the teaching chair, I was not just helping people. I was helping artists. And they're my favorite people of all. So there's, there's nothing like performing for a live audience. There's also nothing like being on a TV show or a film that shows to millions. It's incredible. It's an incredible experience, but it's very different. Mm -hmm. And so I like them all. But with teaching, you get instant gratification. And you're really helping someone develop and realize their dreams. And there's something very special about that. Well, so I, I like it all. I, I, I have not... Uh, I, I cannot tell you. I've done voiceover. I've done commercials. I've done a soap. I've done many television shows and many films, and I like them all equally. And I love that I do it all. Patrick Swayze was a dear friend of mine. We call him Buddy. That was his nickname. He came up to me one night in acting class. That's where we met. We were friends for years. And he put his arm around me and he said, motion pictures. We got to get you in motion pictures. And I walked away and I didn't feel very good. He was a very strong personality. We loved each other, but he was a very strong person. I didn't feel good for about two days until I woke up in the morning and I went, that's his dream. That's not right. my dream. That's his dream. And he, of course, he put forth that dream and realized that dream beautifully. But my dream was more to do what I've done, which is to do all of it. Right. I, I, I love that I've done some voiceovers. I love that I've done 45 commercials. I love that I've done television. I love that I've done film. I love it all. And I love that I teach. It's, so where was your family in the midst of all of this? Did you have their support backing you through all these decisions? <laughs> it looked like I had their support. Uh, as it's developed, I realized they were trying to support. My father's the one that had the most difficulty. I think my mother was very supportive. My brother was a rock drummer. And then he became a rock manager and then he left the business. Uh, he wasn't, he didn't like the business. He went back and became a mortgage broker and now he's retired. My sister was a beautiful singer and musician 
but she never thought of it as a career. Mm-hmm. My father, because he really was and wanted to be an artist, he loved playing trumpet. He played in big bands in the er, er, before the war. He looked like he was supporting me, but I have to say along the way, he would say and do things that other people might go, that's not really support. It's yeah. somebody trying. And then he said to me once when I was in Godspell, I was going to say starring in Godspell. We all starred in Godspell. Yeah. Everybody had about the same size part, except Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the star. But uh, he said, after drinking a little too much one night, he said, I never thought you could do it. Oh. And I, and that, that hit me and stuck with me for a long time. And it took me years to figure it out. And I went, oh, he never thought I could do it because he decided to quit. And people have a tendency to look at the world through their eyes and through their own reality. And his reality was art is too hard. You have to get a real job. You have to get a, you know, a, a solid job. And he became an accountant. Um, and so I went, of course, he never thought I could do it. So I have to say he did a pretty good job of looking like he was supporting me. Okay. Meanwhile, he was thinking, I, I don't think he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. But he used to say something to me, which, which is funny. I said this for the first time in teaching recently. He used to say whenever I'd come home flying off the walls because of a great rehearsal or a great performance, he'd say, get off your tippy toes, Jer. He always called me Jer. I don't know why. <laughs> but he said, get off your tippy toes, Jer. And I realize he was kind of warning me that there was going to be a big loss here when I find out I couldn't do that. I didn't realize that was the subtext of what he was saying, but he was basically cautioning me that there was great pain ahead and I was going to have to quit because I wasn't going to make it. And I look back on that now and I go, oh yeah, that was his reality, but I never realized it. I just thought he 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 was being kind of ornery in those moments. And maybe I was a little obnoxious. I have yeah. to say when I'm, when I'm that excited after a show or something, I'm probably loud and obnoxious and don't stop talking and things like that. So, but uh, other than that, you know, certainly the neighbors, I had a, I had a woman who worked on the high school production. She was kind of a local actress. She directed me in a play in the community theater. She was lovely. She said to me when I started in Oklahoma in my sophomore year in, in high school, she said, you have it, whatever it was. She said, you have it. And she was very encouraging. A number of people were. My family was pretty good. It got to a point where we had to meet one day. I was having a nice career and they'd all quit art or or chose not to do it at Mm -hmm. all. And I had a meeting with them one day and it was the best meeting I could have ever had because there were some conflicts. And I said, look, I said, you guys don't really understand how I can do what I'm doing because you all chose not to do it. Mm -hmm. I said, but I got to be honest with you. I don't know how you do what you do. I couldn't do a nine to five job if people paid me a bajillion dollars, which was one of the reasons I stopped going towards medicine is that it's not a nine to five job, but it's it's a it's a regular kind of job. I said, I'm a creature of the theater. I'm a creature of television and film. I said, how about we all just understand that we don't understand each other. Mm-hmm. Let's just accept it. You're never going to understand how I do what I do because you've chosen a different lifestyle. And I'm not going to understand how you do what you do because you've I've chosen a different lifestyle from you. And we got along way better after that. Way Great. better. We just agreed to disagree or agreed to not understand. And it was very helpful. It was I very, think that's very something helpful. with most actors and their families, which 
for me ends up making you need to find a mentor of sorts who can understand what you're working towards. So where did you get yours from? How did you find a mentor that would help push you in that way where it was lacking in your family? Well, ultimately, I had a, I, the, the friend of a girl I did a summer theater, the, sorry, the mother of the gr a girl I did a summer theater show right out of high school, uh, kind of adopted me for a period of time, was kind of an advisor. She was my early mentor. And she said, you were born to sing. I've never forgotten it. Oddly enough, her name was Jim. I've never met a woman whose name was Jim, <laughs> but her name was Jim uh, and never forgotten that. But she said that, so I hung on to that. I hung on to what the, the woman in high school told me. But then really, I, that's not true. I had a mentor in New York who became my private teacher for a short period of time, Stephen Rosenfield, who was a Stanford graduate and a director, and he directed me in a production. But really, my mentor ultimately was Milton Katselis, who is the man I studied with for 27 years at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. And how he did was, you get introduced to the Beverly Hills Playhouse? Oddly enough, I did that movie when I that I booked four days off the plane. Uh, we went to Texas for uh, six weeks, nine weeks, something like that. That was Dennis Quaid's first film, big movie star. Um, and we were all the four leads in the movie. And my oh, I love Chuck that movie. Biden, I'm a huge, oh, you know I that love movie? that movie. I did a scene from that in your class with Jesse. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, that's funny. Um, Jeffrey Byron and I became very close friends. We were buddies for years and we kind of went to acting classes together. I did a Meisner, we did a Meisner class together and he left that Meisner class earlier than I did. And he called me up one day and he said, Hey, I found this place called the Beverly Hills Playhouse with Milton Katselis. I think he might be the, the right fit. And I went over there and it was magnificent. In those days, Milton was kind of the premier teacher in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And uh, Milton was responsible for helping Patrick Swayze, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Tom Selleck. A lot of people came out of that studio. And it was a really passionate, hot place to be um, when I went there. And so he really became my mentor. And he's the reason I'm a teacher. I would not be a teacher without his, his help and instruction. How long were a, you studying there? I studied there for 27 years. Okay, so I taught they, for 20. You taught 20 there and studied seven? Taught for 20 years. No, I studied 27 years. I studied while I was teaching. Okay. I was in the master class. I was in the evening advanced class. And then as I became more and more of a teacher, I moved to the master class on Saturdays. Okay. But what yeah, I makes, studied with him for 27 years. At what point, do you, or if any, do you think someone, is there a point where someone shouldn't should move out of studying or should you always be in acting class and honing your craft? You know, I should, as a teacher, say you should always be in acting class, but I can't say that. Okay. I think it's really up to each individual. I, my, my goal, I, I joke that I want to teach myself out of business with each student. Mm -hmm. my, I have a very strong and passionate goal to help people become self able to evaluate their own work. That's a passion. That was not Milton's passion, but that was my passion when I went off on my own. But I do think that some of those people will come back as they hit new problems in the industry. And I really think that's the way it should be. I, however, 
if someone needs to keep their creative juices flowing and needs to keep the engine well-oiled and well-running all the time, then you should be in an acting class because jobs are sometimes sporadic. Sometimes there's long times in between. The best way to keep things running and well-oiled is to get it, get back into acting class. So ultimately, I think it depends upon the situation. And it depends upon the individual. Okay. How do you think people should go about choosing what acting class is best for them? Wow. That's a really, that's a really good question. I, I'm going to say something and it probably doesn't apply to me. Okay. Because I think if people come to my class, they're going to like me. Uh, don't mm -hmm. pick the, the teacher you like the most in terms of personality. Pick the teacher that you think is going to be the most effective with you. And sometimes people like someone and they go, oh, he'll be a good teacher. Well, that teacher might not push you enough or something like that. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I also, oh, okay. I don't know how much time you have. No, take your, we, we got there, time. There are two different, there are two different styles of training Okay. in anything. Two different styles of training in sports, two different styles of training in acting, two different styles of training in dance, two different styles of training in music. And the styles are the tough love teacher uh, or not even tough love, the tough taskmaster who pushes and pushes and pushes. Um, and sports coaching, there's a lot of those. And then there's the softer, kinder, gentler ones mm -hmm. who are more supportive and not quite so abrasive. Mm -hmm. I trained on the first type. Part of the reason I left was that wasn't really my style. My style is the second part. I decided that an artist at least needs the safest place in the world to be. And if that was the way, then I could no longer berate them and hand them their head if they didn't act well. And I couldn't talk about bad and wrong. I wanted to support, but that's my style. Mm -hmm. I would say to people, there is a danger in the other style. And the danger is this. Unfortunately, most artists have a certain level of insecurity and a certain level of self-criticism mm -hmm. and self-invalidation. And if you study with some of those tough taskmasters, sometimes they'll say to you, Oh, you're a terrible actor. Thank God you found me. I'll save you. That's a good business model. But the problem is, and a lot of students go, oh, they see me. They mm -hmm. understand. But they don't understand. What they understand is what the actor's telling themselves, which is their own negative voices or their own self-invalidation. And it can look like the teacher gets you because the teacher says what you're hearing. Yep. But I find the opposite is true, that that a lot of those actors are better than they think. And what they need is to be told that. Now, this is not an easy way to teach, because sometimes I'll tell somebody what they just did was pretty good and why. And they'll look like I'm speaking Swahili. Right. And sometimes I'll joke with them and I'll say, no, I'm just kidding. You really sucked. And they'll get a big grin on their face because that aligns with what they're hearing, that aligns with what they think is their own reality. The truth is what a student brought me once a quote, and, and neither of us know who originated this quote, but it's so true, which is believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. 
But what we do is we believe our doubts and we doubt our beliefs. Mm -hmm. You understand? We believe that, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I shouldn't be an actor. Maybe I should go back. Maybe like that English teacher, I should, I should not waste my brain, you know, uh, in art. And that I find, if you really want to help artists, you want to help them believe their beliefs and doubt their doubts. And you're going to have to talk to them about most of them are better than they think. Some aren't. Some actors have false pride and an over, an over, and an, an, a, a too big than real sense of themselves. Those mm -hmm. people you have to teach differently. But most artists I have found uh, are better than they think. And so what you're working on is getting them to understand what gifts they have and then getting to understand them to understand where the weak spots are and how to strengthen them. It sounds like what is considered imposter syndrome that most actors mm -hmm. suffer from. Is that something you suffered from yourself when it comes to your art or were you are always pretty confident in no. your ability? In the early part of my career, uh, in fact, my agent, the best agent I ever had, his name was Jack Fields. He was one of the founding partners of Paradigm later. Uh, which is now William Morris Paradigm, um, he said to me, I was working a lot mm -hmm. and we had a great partnership. And he, but he said, I think I believe in you more than you do. It took me many years to understand he was absolutely correct. And I think that helped me back. One of the biggest problems with actors and their careers is their attitude mm -hmm. about their own work and their belief in themselves or, or lack of same. And, uh, so in fact, talk about imposter syndrome. Uh, this didn't affect her in terms of making her career, but Julia Roberts went on The Tonight Show and one night at the height of her career, which she'd just done Pretty Woman, she was a big star. And she said, every day I wake up, I think the world is gonna discover my secret. And Johnny Carson said, well, what's your secret? She said that I can't act. And I went, wow, that's fascinating. This woman who, who can write her own ticket at this point, has that problem. But for some reason, Julia Roberts didn't let it get in the way of mm -hmm. her getting on with her career. She somehow was able to compartmentalize, put that off on the side and not be run by it. The, the phenomenon that I see too often is you'll see sometimes actors in an acting class who are more talented than the actor you saw on the show the night before. And you go, why aren't they working? But the actor last night is, it's their attitude. Got it's it. that it's that they think they're an imposter or they don't think they're good or whatever. And the actor who worked last night, either like Julia Roberts, puts that aside or doesn't have as much of it. Mm -hmm. So there you go. When you talk about how all these different aspects in the acting industry has filled you just as much as one another mm -hmm. is acting and teaching your only passions or have you gotten into writing and directing as well? Well, I've gotten into directing, uh, directing plays at least. I haven't directed a film yet, but uh, I won five best director awards uh, for the plays that I've directed in Los Angeles. You didn't know that? I did not. That's why yeah. I already called, that's why I call you living legend. I knew it was more yeah. than what I knew. Yeah, I did some some very, very, I'm very pleased with the work that I did. And, and oddly enough, directing was a very easy transition. It wasn't even a transition because I studied with Milton Kinsellis was a director and he taught from a directing perspective. 
So really, the, so I'd been directing for 20 years when I started directing because I'd been teaching for 20 years. What the only thing I needed to now do was increase my vision and understand that I wasn't just responsible for these actors in this scene. I was now responsible for the whole production, the concept, the look, the, the whole tone of the piece, et cetera. But that was a pretty easy transition for me um, because I, I love directing. Um, I, um, so yeah, I've done directing. And I, I'm kind of passionate about everything that I do, even my hobbies and my life and my family and all of that. I'm just kind of a passionate person. You, I learned the term home art from you. Yeah. Can you explain what home art means? Yeah, I kind of made it up. It's just something I've observed, observed in myself and then in others. Um, home art is the first art you started in your life, the one you were drawn to first. Mm -hmm. So like I have a, a, a dancer choreographer in the musical artist class, Katie, you know, Katie. Mm -hmm. And Katie's home art is dance, clearly. That's where she lives. That's where her heart lives. Oddly enough, I've concluded that my home art is singing because I was singing before I was acting. And my mother was a USO singer, former, and, and she had a, a little, I call it a paint by number organ where the keys were numbered and you sort of play by the numbers and the chords are buttons and things on the side. I was singing songs with her at the age of three, three and a half, four, and I sang first. And singing is the art that I do the most easily, the least I question. Like, I don't question when I go to sing a song. I don't question my choices. I don't question anything. Mm -hmm. In the early days of acting, I questioned everything. Now I've learned how to act like I sing and I've used okay. that. But, but um, my home art is, is uh, singing. And some, for some people it's acting, for some people it's dance, for some people it's music. Some people's home art is painting. Right. You know, you, you, you know some, uh, some actors who are lovely, wonderful painters. Painting might actually be their home art. You wanna know Patrick Swayze, most people don't know this. His home art was dance. He was gonna be a ballet right. star. His he mother was, heading, was a dance instructor, was, right? He grew up in her ballet class. He met his wife. Uh, um, Lisa in that dance class. They were together since they were 16. And the only reason he turned to acting is he blew his knee out um, in ballet and acting was a second choice profession for him. But ballet, he, he, I helped him. They, they, he had a passion piece called um, Without a Word, which was all about dance and all about their life in dance. And they eventually made it into a movie. I actually haven't seen it. But they they did it in a in a uh, as a as a theatrical show, mm -hmm. and that he truly his passion truly lived in the world of dance. He and she both danced in some musical pieces I put together for a one man show once many decades ago. But his home art was dance, clearly. How does an actor who doesn't necessarily their home art may be acting? But to increase their opportunities, they move into another art form like writing. How do you suggest they marry them all together where they don't lose their home art, but they combine it with other areas? That's, a really, that's exactly the question I was hoping you were going to ask because I was going to mention it if you didn't. The, the second point and the point of home art, even thinking about home art, 
is if you don't keep your foot in the door of the home art, all of your other arts will suffer. So if I don't sing, and this is my theory, this mm -hmm. is my observed, this is based on my observations of myself and others. If I don't sing occasionally, no matter how much I'm acting or teaching or directing or doing whatever, if I don't sing from time to time, I kind of begin to shrink. I mm. kind of begin to withdraw. I'm not as effective in all of the other arts. So I know I have to sing every once in a while and I can feel it. Oddly enough, my father, who was the trumpet player, would still go up and play the trumpet every six weeks in the bedroom on Sunday. And you'd hear these melancholy sounds coming out of this instrument. So he kind of kept his hand in his home art also. But so, so a dancer needs to dance from time to time, doesn't have to focus on it, doesn't mm -hmm. have to be the focus, but you got to keep in touch. And all of your other arts and all of your life will flourish if you do. And it won't be quite as good if you don't. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I'm putting them together. When an actor is beginning to start to take steps in getting booked on different projects, whatever projects they may be, at what point does it become necessary to start turning things down or saying that doesn't best serve me in my career? Is there a point where an actor should take anything that comes to them or is that a choice they're able to make right off? Well, again, I hate to hate to give you a, a kind of uh, non-answer. It depends upon the person. Okay. Nancy Nancy Walker, who was became famous as Rosie, the the waitress in the in the Bounty paper towel commercials in the eighties. Okay. And then later she went on to play the the housekeeper in Macmillan and Wife with Rock Hudson and and many other things. She she had a lovely career. She said. Don't turn anything down. That was her career motto. And that's how she got where she got. And had she turned down Rosie, the, the bounty paper, paper towel waitress, she probably never would have become the known actor and working actor that she was. So for her, that was the best way to do it. I would say certainly in the beginning of your career, don't turn anything down. Okay. I mean, now if you get offered a porn movie or something, right. then it's, it's up to you. Uh, yeah, although there's a rumor that Scorsese's first movie was a porn movie. I don't know whether that's true or not. But so it's kind of up to you. But I have run into actors. I, I ran into an actor once in, in, in my classes many years ago who said to me, I got offered a part. I said, great. She said, but I'm going to turn it down. And I said, why? She said, it's part of a hooker. I said, that's great. Why are you turning it down? She said, I don't want to get typecast as hookers. I said, get cast before you're worried about being typecast, for God's sakes. Now, if you've played five hookers and now somebody's offering you a sixth hooker, maybe that's time to turn down the hookers so mm -hmm. that people don't think that's the only thing you can play. But get cast. So in the early part of your career, don't turn anything down. You never know. Uh, I, I got to tell you a quick okay. example of this. Um. Todd Holland is his name. There was a graduate, a, a student of film at USC and his name was Todd Holland. And my friend at the time and my music director at the time for when I sang was a man named Stacy Weidlitz. And Stacy wanted to be a film composer. Mm -hmm. 
and he would scour the trades for ads for short films or student films or whatever. And Todd Holland had a, a film he'd been working on for three years. It was called Chicken Thing. I remember the specifics of this story. And he met with Todd Holland and it was all about this boy's dream or not of how his, his uh, bureau turns into this chicken monster and scares, okay. scares the heck out of him. And so Stacy talked with Todd and Todd had a budget for the, the entire score for the movie of $900. And Stacy said, okay, he said, I want to do this. He said, but take the 900, put it into getting a good studio and good equipment and all that, and I'll work for free. So he, he, he did the music, which he'd done for other films. And this film became the talk of the town. Because okay. Spielberg got a hold of it, and all kinds of people saw this film. And Todd Holland was now the new hot young director out of USC. And Spielberg took him under his wing and kind of became his mentor all because of this film. But because that happened, Stacy now got hired to do film scores because he scored that film, which became the, the hot short film in Hollywood that particular year, that particular season. So you never know who you're going to work with. You never know that, you know, some little job that you think is going to be nothing, all of a sudden it's up for an Academy Award as a short, or it's up for, uh, you know, or somebody who works it now is the new director at NBC or something. You mm -hmm. just never know. So in the early days, don't turn anything down. When that would be my advice. If you're not turning things down, should you still be focusing on your casting type? Or taking, since you're taking whatever comes to you, do you set your typecasting aside? And whatever someone takes you for is what you focus on? Well, most of what comes to you is going to be your casting type. Let's let's okay. be honest. That's okay. the way people cast. They're 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 unlikely to reach that far outside of your casting type because first of all, they looked at your picture and you look like the character or like mm -hmm. somebody who could be the character. Then you auditioned and they go, Okay, that works. So it's unusual, you know. Um most of the actors who play characters started in theater and established established them gary oldman in london meryl streep in new york established themselves as character actors in theater mm -hmm. and then then were desired for that ability but it's very hard to become a, a character actor in film one who plays very different characters right um but um what was your first question? There's, there's something else I want to say, and I just want to get back on focus. Typecasting, oh, sticking yeah, to type your casting. own. I, I don't just advise people to go after parts that are their typecasting. I also advise people to go after parts or shows that they're passionate about, because that passion will influence the whole process. People will smell it. They'll feel it. They'll mm -hmm. see it. They'll hear it. You know, write a note and say, you know, maybe I'm not perfect for your show, but I love your show so much and I really want to play on it. That that could, that's also a way to administer your career. I wouldn't just do that. I would definitely go after and the And who are you writing the note to? Just so people have an understanding of, because this goes into the networking aspect of going Start to your career. Start with the casting director. If you don't get results from the casting director, go to the producer. You don't get results from the producer, go to the writer. You don't get results from the writer, go to the director. Somebody, somebody will hear you. 
And uh, so, yeah, I mean, th this is the area mm -hmm. that most actors don't fully understand. When actors come to me and they say, I want to go to college and learn acting, I usually say, don't learn acting in college. So you're going to learn acting far, far more easily and better in a professional acting class. But, but if you want to go to college, study marketing, study business. Yes. Yes. Because in unfortunately, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, you are the vacuum cleaner salesman and you are the vacuum. Mm -hmm. So you want to know how to push a product because you are the product you're pushing. Right. And it's particularly hard when you are the product. Mm -hmm. So get get your tools, get your administrative tools. You don't have to go to college to get administrative tools. But this is one of the 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 biggest areas where actors fall down mm -hmm. is they think, oh, I just need to get an agent and then they'll do it. In fact, there's a story quickly. Um, no, it's up to you all the way along in your career. It's up to you to be the chairman of the board of your organization all the way along. And you can't just rely on an agent to do it. I did that much to my own uh, uh it, it, I could have been even more successful had I understood what I understand now. Mm -hmm. um, my manager was in the vice president of William Morris's office one day years ago. And he was on the phone. She was waiting for their meeting and he was on the phone. He's saying, look, I just can't get you in on this project. I've done everything I know how to look. I've got somebody in my office. I can't get you on this project. I'm sorry. I've done everything I know how to do. Okay. Goodbye. And she said, wow, young actors, huh? He said, young actors, that's Al Pacino. And Al Pacino was a star. And he was working his agent, pushing his agent. And I can guarantee you, if Al Pacino couldn't get his agent to get a reading, Al Pacino went to the producer or the director or the star of the movie and found a way in if he could. You know, Al Pacino understood that. And I think that's part of what has gone to making him the star that he is, is he knows how to work his own career. And advocate for himself. Correct. Exactly. In the end, no one is going to advocate as passionately as you do or can because you're the one who knows what you have to offer. Absolutely. So. What practices would you suggest to a new actor or even someone coming back or who's been doing it a while without getting much result? what would your first five steps be that they focused on more to get a, a startup? Okay. Uh, my first answer is going to be very self-serving. I You want to make sure that the machinery, the acting machinery, whether you're starting out or you're coming back, is running very smoothly and is well-oiled. So get yourself in a class mm -hmm. uh, just so I don't be completely self-serving. You don't want to join a class, get a couple of actors together and do scenes, mm -hmm. do scenes on your own, get your chops back in shape or get them in shape for the first time. Once you feel confident enough to reach out for work and that shouldn't take that long mm -hmm. because the early work is going to be the doctor who comes in and says two lines or the, the student who, you know, is sitting in the back of the room and maybe has a line or two. So we're not talking about starring roles in the beginning of a career. We're talking about little things, you know, and, and most people can handle that pretty easily. Now you want to talk about administering your career. Now you want to 
one of the things I like to do is tell actors to ask everyone you know who's attached to the business and get as many opinions as possible because there is no formula. There, there is. You talk to Kevin Costner about he got how he got his start. It's going to be very different than how I got my start. It's going to be very different than how somebody else got their start. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no formula. If there was, someone would have written it. Everyone would be following it, and they would own, you know, Texas. Um, so that that hasn't happened because there is no formula. But I would ask everybody, and then then you kind of want to get your own sense of what seems right for you. Mm-hmm. because what seems right for you will be right for you, even though it may not be right for somebody else. And then work, make it your job to administer your career, whether you're starting out on these casting websites and doing essentially non-union work, whether it's it's uh, working on getting vouchers so that you can become SAG eligible because one of your dreams is to be in SAG and be on that level, but make it a job. Work one hour a day, two hours a day, increase it. I think your working on your career should be almost as important as working on your art. And I think most people don't understand that because they've been hypnotized by uh, the e-entertainment and all the different you know, gossip shows or news mm-hmm. shows about our business where you think people just get discovered. Right. Because they love that story. They love that, that story. overnight success story. Yeah. yeah. Barbara Streisand was an overnight success on Broadway in Funny Girl. No, she wasn't. She'd been working since 14 at the club uh, uh, La Mama, I think it was downtown or one of the one of the clubs. She'd been working on her voice and her act and her singing. And she was also in a Broadway show that was a failure called I Can Get It For You Wholesale. So she wasn't an overnight success. Very few people are overnight successes. I remember, I remember once to tell you, even our industry likes it. Um, I was starring in a, in a television pilot with Milton Berle. Now, most of your audience isn't even going to know who that was, but he was a stand-up comedian and, a, and, and the first huge television star. He had the first television show on television. Mm-hmm. It was called the Milton Berle Comedy Hour or something, whatever it was called. And I worked with Milton Berle. I was starring opposite him. And our director was Jackie Cooper, who was a very famous actor and now director. And Jackie called me over. And I was, I'd been an actor now on Broadway in television and film for like, how old was I? Uh, Probably 15 years, something like that. And he called me over and he said, hey, kid. He called me kid because he was much older. He said, hey, kid, you, you, you had a series? You've been in the lead in a series yet? I said, no. No, I haven't actually. I've done a couple of pilots, but you know, they, they may have aired, but they didn't sell. And he said, good, good. Cause people like to think they discovered you. And I thought, what a joke. I've been in the business for 15 years. Now I'm going to be discovered. But that's, <laughs> that's kind of people like that. They like to say, I was the one who gave him his start, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Carol O'Connor in, 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 uh, uh, all in the family got his start at 55 years old. You'll, oh, see wow. him in a, you'll see him in a Star Trek episode as a, as a character actor. He, he did a lot of roles in television, but guest stars. He never had a regular role until he was 55 years old. And then he had an incredible career, winning all kinds of awards and doing a number of different series, All in the Family and In the Heat of the Night. But, you know, he got his start. He got his big break when he was 55. But he had a great career before. That's just people didn't know. It. He was one of those faces. You don't know the name of that actor. Yeah. You know, 
So, but, but make it a job, make it part of your daily work because it's work, it's sales. I've and you are, you've yeah, taught us ahead. a lot about gradients yeah. and ha making sure we celebrate things that happen at a gradient without putting so much pressure on what's not happening yeah. for us. Well, I, I, I use gradients in everything that I do. So when I say spend an hour a day, if you can't spend an hour a day administering your career because it's too hard to confront, spend five minutes. And then the next day, spend six. And then the next day, maybe you move it up to 10. Work it up. If you work in little steps and kind of celebrate and appreciate what you have accomplished. I mean, maybe you can only write one letter or one email. Mm -hmm. You can only confront one email. Well, good, confront one email and then celebrate it. Have a, have a nice cappuccino or, or a, a cookie or something and, and celebrate that. And then the next day, you'll feel so good about having done that one letter. Maybe you'll write two that, that day. And you'd be surprised how in a very short, of, short amount of time, you will start to uh, accumulate a lot of work. I learned this lesson early. When I, when I was in high school, I wanted to run. I don't know why I wanted to run. I wanted to run. So every time I would go to run, I'd go out and I'd run for 20 minutes. Well, you don't run for 20 minutes when you haven't run and you're not in shape. Right. What happens is your muscles seize up. You're in pain. You can't even get out of bed the next morning. And then by the end of the week, when you've recovered, you've forgotten that you want to be a runner. Every time I would do that. So what happened is I was on a weight loss program, Jenny Craig, believe it or not. And they said, you got to walk and you want to get up to walking an hour a day. Okay. I got up to walking an hour a day and one day every day. And I loved it. And I was bored. And I went, well, and this was way later. Uh, and I said, well, I'd like to, let's run. I said, okay, I'm going to run for 30 seconds. Because now I understood gradients. Okay. I ran for 30 seconds and forced myself to stop. I wanted to run a little more. I went, nope, I'm going to stop. So I came the next day. And of course, I was in great shape because I walked for an hour. So 30 seconds of running didn't do anything to me. So I said, today, I'm going to run a minute. So I ran a minute. Then I ran a minute and a half. Then two minutes. Then one day, I felt I'm a little tired today. I'm only going to run two minutes again. So I ran two minutes. Within a year, I ran a marathon. Within a year? Within a year, I ran a marathon. By the time I was up to running a half hour, I went, oh, maybe I should run a marathon. I've always wanted to. And so I read a book about, about marathon training. And, and the book happened to be a way to run a marathon without ever fully running a marathon before the marathon you run. You get up to 22-mile runs, a couple of them. And I ran a marathon. And for my age bracket, I had an incredible time. I ran it in three hours and 58 minutes, which for my age bracket was really good. And I did that all by adding 30 seconds a day of running. And then eventually I added a minute or two mm -hmm. or whatever. I just took it on a gradient where my, I knew my body could handle it. Gradients are very important in everything you do. While working on a gradient, how do you handle dry spells that everyone can fall into, especially when you're starting out and you're new and None of the casting directors really know who you are yet. And you're trying to build a rapport with them or with your new agents. How do you navigate those dry spells where you're almost getting there, but never quite hitting the finish line? Well, I had it. Uh, I came back from shooting this movie with Dennis Quaid, thinking I was now a guaranteed star. 
mm-hmm. and I didn't get a job for nine months, not even a commercial. And I was booking a lot of commercials and I didn't even book a commercial. It was the hardest period of my life. So I learned a few lessons. One is keep creating. It's very important to keep creating. That was when I was looking for acting classes to mm-hmm. keep my juices flowing, to keep feeling like I'm producing, even though I'm not necessarily producing in the business. And that's actually when I found Milton's class. Second thing is, which I didn't know then, is keep outflowing. Keep outflowing communications. Keep outflowing energy in the direction of what you want to accomplish. Write letters. Send posts on uh, social media. Uh, post a YouTube video or a YouTube you know, talk or conversation or whatever, keep producing things and keep making outreach in the direction of your jobs. Because the one thing, and I find this even with my acting classes, if my acting classes get a little stale in terms of new people coming Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, all I have to do is send out a constant contact email. And sometimes not in response to the constant contact email, things will come in. Mm -hmm. People will start to reach. It's an amazing thing. And I have this concept to explain the metaphysics of it. If you have a bowl of water and it's full Mm -hmm. and you want to pour more water into it, it's not going to, you can't. You have to spill water out in order for water to be able to be put in that bowl. Well, you have to spill energy out in order for energy to come your way. It's, there's also the physics law of inertia. A body at rest tends to stay at rest and a body in motion tends to stay at motion. So you want reaches to come in You've got to make reaches out in in any form. Right. Constantly putting yourself out there to receive Correct. things back. In one way or another. Even if it's just to, you know, um, uh, Amy, Lieber, Amy Lieberman. No, that's my other casting friend. Amy Berman, who used to be casting director at HBO, now is big on internet and giving advice to actors and classes and things. Uh, one piece of advice I heard her say, I think she's right on the money. She said, don't connect with people in the business on social media to get jobs. She said, connect with people in the business on social media to make social connections and be social with them. They want friends. They want acquaintances. Later on, if something comes up and you now have a free flow of friendship going on in the social media, mm-hmm. and maybe you hear about a part, you could say, hey, not that I'm here for that, but I heard about this part any chance. Then you can use that connection, but you got to make the connection first. You got to make it genuinely person to person. So even that, even outflowing social communication with casting directors, because you never know that there might not be a part on their desk that week. And they look at that social media, come across their phone or their computer and they go, oh, she's a black actress. She's got beautiful eyes. And I have a black actress with beautiful eyes described here in this piece. Hmm. Let me, let me type her. Do you act? Oh yeah, you do. Oh, you want to read for this part? I mean, you never know when that's going to happen. So that, that can be outflow also. Okay. Do you, do you, how do you, um, how do you communicate to students the importance of not just networking up, but across? What do you mean by that exactly? And what I mean by that is not just reaching out to people who are already in the industry. You know, most people want to show their work or get 
um, Steven Spielberg on their projects instead of the filmmaker in class sitting right next to them, you know, who also is in the same realm, but people tend to want to reach up toward the biggest names instead of across to the people who are in their reach. Well, first of all, don't reach to Steven Spielberg until you're damn certain you're ready for him. Because that's, that's, I don't think you should fear not being ready too hard, but I also think you should be realistic. Right. So, so everybody wants to work with Spielberg, but Spielberg doesn't want to work with everybody. So you kind of got to work up to Spielberg on a gradient basis. Um, I mean, if somebody has this enormous sense of themselves and they're really right, they are going to be the next star. Okay. Reach to Steven. What the hell, you know, but but I think you got to work up. The other thing with agents, don't go with ICM uh, if, if you're a young actor, you know, I know you're hip pocketed by them, so that's fine. That's a different, you're in a different category, but you're going to get lost there and they're going to yeah, lose absolutely. you. And so find an agent that wants your level of talent and then work yourself up from there. But I tell a story that uh, I heard Ivan Reitman say, the, the director of Ghostbusters and many, many great films, I think also a Caddyshack and a number of films. Ivan Reitman and Bill Murray were in class, I think in Second City together. And Ivan Reitman said, I looked around the room and I went, I'm certainly not the most talented performer here, but I know who is. And it was Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. And so he made sure he sat next to Bill Murray every class. And Bill Murray and he struck up a friendship. Now, it's not by accident that that friendship blossomed into all these movies, Ghostbusters, uh, Caddyshack, because they helped each other. And they helped each other climb the ladder to success. And, and it's the same thing, oddly enough, with three directors from uh, uh, USC. It was Spielberg. Oh, I'm going to forget these names now. Spielberg. John Milius and the director of Back to the Future, whose name I should remember. Oh, God. Sorry, I've forgotten his name. I don't but know either. They've helped each other all along. They brought projects to each other and said, what do you think of this? And they've helped each other. And, and you know, usually you think directors are uh, competitive. Mm -hmm. um, you know what? While you talk, I'm going to look up this director just so I can give the right answer um robert zemeckis okay he's done he's done many many wonderful films but uh he and spielberg and i think it's milius and might be might be one other director that i'm not remembering they've helped each other all along in their careers um and i think that's great i think peer-to-peer -peer help uh is is very very valuable and you never know when the person next to you or you is going to become the next it girl or mm -hmm. it guy, next, right. the new thing, the next thing, and you'll help each other. Mm -hmm. Okay, one last question. Yep. If you could prevent another actor or student from making a huge mistake that you feel you've made in your career, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> I have to tell you, can I tell your story yes. to answer this question? Yes. 
and, and the advice would be don't make decisions out of emotion and don't burn bridges, mm. Ooh, which you yeah. have a tendency to do in emotion. Mm -hmm. This is the story. When I, I had an interesting acting career. I'm, I'm actually returning to acting now, but I, I, I left acting in order to direct. Um, and I kind of did everything I wanted to do as an actor for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And now I'm kind of interested in playing around again. Um, but I had an interesting career because I played high school kids till I was like 33 on television. Well, I now understand all child actors because you don't wake up one morning and you're an adult. You just wake up one morning and you're an old looking kid. Okay. And people don't want to hire old looking kids. Right. And this was a problem in Mickey Rooney's career for a long time. Because he, Mickey, I worked with Mickey, and he was 5'2". And okay. because of his size and his energy, you know, those of us who play young people for a long time, we have a youthful energy. Mm -hmm. We usually have a youthful voice, and I still do, you know, and I'm way older. So the lead agent in Jack Field's office, and Jack didn't do day-to-day -day agenting. He sort of sat above and handled the stars and came into things when he needed to and gave advice, but he wasn't the, he wasn't the hands-on agent, even though we became very good, very dear friends. The head agent that had newly come to the office had a meeting with me one day and he said, I can't push you as, as an actor any longer. He said, I'll lose my credibility with the other uh, casting people because uh, you're, you're in a bad category, a bad place in your career and I can't help you. Well, I walked away from that meeting, not very happy. Mm -hmm. and thinking, what use is this guy to me? So I talked to my manager, my great manager, and I think we both made an error. And she said, oh, well, we'll just get another agent. And I said, great, we'll go to another agent. So I decided Monday morning to walk into Jack's office. Now, Jack and I were friends. Jack loaned me his place in Palm Springs to go vacation, and we were friends. He took me to functions. He he was responsible for me meeting Cary Grant at a, at a fundraiser and all kinds of things. He was a very beautiful, beautiful, caring man. And I walked into Jack's office and I said, I have to leave. This is what happened with Michael. And I, I can't, I, I don't know how I'm going to work with him. Now, Jack was a, a Zen, a Jewish Maoist. He'd studied the teachings and teachings of Mao, even though he was Jewish. And he was very much into peace and love and all of this. And he said, well, I understand that's too bad, but I understand. Be well. Oh, and wow. that was the stupidest mistake I ever made. Stupidest. What I should have done was I should have gone to Jack and said, Jack, I got a problem. I love you. I don't ever want to leave you as, a, as an agent. He's the best agent I ever had. I never had an agent as good as he was after that because it was the wrong choice. I should have gone, Jack, we got a problem. What are we going to do? Michael says he can't represent me and he's your head agent. There are two mm -hmm. other agents in the office. What can we do? Can you come in on this? Can you help? Or am I just going to have to eat the fact that I'm not going to work for a little while? Is he right? Oddly enough, the, 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 the coda to the story is Michael, within a year or two, ended up stealing nine of Jack's top clients going to another agency and ended up being one of the first people in the industry to die of AIDS. So how do you like that? Would that make a movie or what? So 
But by that point, I'd left. I was with another agent and happy at the time, although they never were as good as Jack Field. But that was a huge error. So what I want to say, and it was out of emotion. Mm-hmm. It was out, I, was, I was pissed. Excuse my French. I was angry at this guy. I thought he didn't handle it well. Who cares? Mm-hmm. He, 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 I should have gone to Jack. I shouldn't have even gone to my manager. I should have gone to my friend. You know, my manager supported me. She got her nose out of joint too, which probably was because I had my nose out of joint. And like a mother, she was protecting me and going, mm-hmm. you're right. Let's go. Let's go get those guys. Stupid. It was a stupid. I, I made very few stupid moves. That was a stupid move. And it was done out of emotion. And, and I burned a bridge. And I didn't talk to Jack Fields for, God, probably 20 years. And he went on to form Paradigm. I mean, Paradigm could have been my agency. And I called him one day. Finally, I got up the courage and I went, I've got to repair this. And I, he was kind of in semi-retirement. Once he, once they formed Paradigm, he kind of, he had an office, but he kind of was in semi-retirement. He was, he was considerably older. And I talked to him, we had a nice talk and he ended up dying a year later. So I was really glad that I did it, but it was, it was, a little bit uncomfortable because it was like, it was just, I, I made an error and I, bro- I, I burned a bridge and I broke a friendship that I never should have broken. So I would say in terms of burning, burning bridges, keep your relationships. Don't drop your relationships. No matter how big you get, don't drop your relationships. Keep, keep a hand in the door. Maybe you, maybe you're, you're, you're so busy now you can't, be best friends anymore, mm-hmm. but you keep your hand in the door. Jeffrey Byron and I still still communicate from time to time. And we made that movie 40 years ago. Wow. And so so you want to keep your relationships. And that was that was a hard one lesson. That that's a great place to end there. <laughs> now that's a mouthful right there. Yeah, that is. A, a great lesson. This has been great, Gary. I'm so glad that we have you here today. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. And you're doing in-person as well as online classes. Yes, ma'am. At the moment, correct? Yep. In in, uh, acting and acting for musical artists, which is the other thing that I do because it's where I started. I teach singers how to act and actors how to act in their singing and their voices improve without even technical training. It's pretty amazing. I never expected it. So I have two different types of classes. I have them online and in person. And you also do private coaching. I do do private well. coaching. Yep. And where can yep. people contact you? Well, there's my website, www.garyimhoff.net. Um, there are also, we're on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I now have a new YouTube channel, which I just uploaded the first video, thanks to your help. Um, uh, what else do I have? Facebook, Facebook? Or t- two Facebook sites and two business Facebook sites. So uh, those are all ways people can contact me. There's a contact on the website. We're redesigning the website. There will be a new launch sometime this year, but this website still works. Just go in the contacts, comes right to my email and I get in touch with people and we go from there. And you can also DM or private message on all of those social sites and we'll Easily. link them to this um, podcast as well easily and if you dm on instagram you get you because you helped me with my yes. instagram because i couldn't confront another another social media you went i'll do it i went okay good and i i love that you do it and you you do a great job thank you no problem okay
Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. Absolutely.